0: We talk a lot about the traditional system of education being like a factory. Dad used the analogy; you can see why it makes sense that you know you're in a production line, and every teacher is responsible for their sort of contribution to the final product. And there are standardized tests along the way, and at the end you kind of package up the project product and ship it off the way you know we group kids by age and they go through the same system regardless of who they are. You know with these systematic checks. But Dad had got kind of in recent years they'd moved away from this idea of it being a factory because of the, the crucial difference between a factory model and education is that children aren't inanimate objects. (laughs) You know, factories create large quantities of inanimate objects. His his feeling was that the correct analogy was an industrial farm. You know, it's the mass production of living things. And his belief was that we're, we're stripping our cultures and our people of our diversity of talents and of our you know the, the very essence of what makes us human and at the same rate industrial farming is ravaging the planet and destroying ecosystems and w- was created to suit a need at a time and has done that very well but at what cost
1: you're listening to the spaceship earth podcast with me dan burgess the concept of the spaceship earth is simple we live on a life-giving rock called earth hurtling through space like a spaceship We have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system, which keeps everything we need replenished as long as we all respect it and use wisely. So an understanding of how this system works, along with deep cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with humans involved in regenerating life. Shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, activists, writers, designers, adventurers, healers, entrepreneurs, creative mavericks, and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world in service to life, becoming crew on the Spaceship Earth. Welcome to the podcast. This is Dan. Thanks for tuning in. It means a lot with so much stuff out there vying for our attention on the internet. I hope this finds you well wherever you are on Spaceship Earth. Uh, So welcome to episode 50. Episode 50! Hello! How did that happen? Uh, Well, yes, well, there are actually nearer 60 episodes available, uh, but that includes a mini-series I made during the first lockdown. But anyway, this... Feels like a special milestone, episode 50. And I have a very special uh, episode guest to mark that. So in this episode, I'm in conversation with Kate Robinson. Now, Kate is co-founder of Imagine If and daughter of the late and so, so great Sir Ken Robinson. Now, if you don't know of Sir Ken, I encourage you to search YouTube after this and watch his TED Talk. Do schools kill creativity? It's the most viewed TED Talk ever, watched over 70 million times. Uh, Now, Sir Ken spent his entire life working in education and learning, initially as a teacher and then as an author, speaker and advisor. And his deep inquiry was around the critical importance of cultivating creativity and imagination in our children, uh, in education and learning institutions and increasingly across cultures. Um, Kate followed this path and spent many years working with her father, Sir Ken, accelerating and mobilising this mission around the world until a sudden illness diagnosis early last year, uh, which tragically led to his death a few months later. Now, Kate carries a deep sense of her father's spirit and has a brilliant and deeply thoughtful view of both the challenges and possibilities for imagination-led cultures. And now with her partner, Anthony, heads the Imagine if Foundation with a provocation to continue the work of Sir Ken Robinson, reimagining the parts of life we take for granted and that no longer serve us. Their mission is to help individuals and organisations understand and harness their innate powers of imagination creativity and collaboration to recreate the worlds that we live in. Now, this was a beautiful, deep, honest and wide ranging conversation, which explored the last year of Sir Ken's life, uh, Kate's relationship growing up with her father, her journey working with him and the legacy of his work, which she is building on. Uh, we talked about schools, education, creativity, imagination, growing up and living in these times of enormous challenge, fear, grief, and yet so much possibility. Ultimately, this is an episode which explores humanness. It's an exploration of how our systemized and industrialised approach to education is stripping so many humans of their unique gifts and diversities. And as Sir Ken said, at the same time as we are draining our planet's resources, we are doing the same to our human resources. In times of increased complexity, we need more creativity and imagination to face into these times, not less. So let's cut to it. This is episode 50 of the Spaceship Earth podcast with Kate Robinson from Imagine If. So, Kate, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thank you. Good to have you here.
0: It's wonderful to be here.
1: about. Are you on uh, our spaceship Earth right now?
0: In the world, we're in Windsor, um, newly freshly in Windsor. Just moved two months ago.
1: Oh wow! How's uh, how's yeah. Windsor?
0: It's lovely. Um, we we <laughs> we were in London um, and moved moved out to Windsor partly because of the pandemic and um, partly because, as we'll talk about, Dad passed away in August. Um, so we've come to sort of have the space and time to process our grief. Um, and and found ourselves at the site of the biggest funeral that's happened in the country for <laughs> about 20 years. So it's, it's not been quite, quite the escape that we were looking for, but it is, it is wonderful. I'm, I'm grateful to be here.
1: Well, thank you yeah. for having this conversation and, um, you've had quite a year and I mean, we all had quite a year, but you've particularly had yeah. quite a, a year. Um, so why don't we, why don't we start with that? If that's okay, maybe you could just, um, share a little bit about what the what the journey's yeah. been like in the last year it's
0: been a year <laughs> yeah i mean i know you've you've had a year as well um yes but, um, and what, what a time to have a year I, I do miss the days when what i was worried about was the pandemic
1: yeah
0: but there was a time when that was the most stressful thing happening um well yeah so we um what happened in the last year we were so i say we but we is me and my my husband anthony who um i work with who runs um, the companies that we have for dad's legacy with me. Um, and we went back. So my parents lived in, um, so my, my dad was Sir Ken Robinson. Um, and he and my mum, um, Terry worked together for, they were next year would have been their 40th wedding anniversary. Um, but they were together for 44 years and, and like, you know, you and Seema or me and Anthony, they worked together for all of it. So
1: (laughs) yeah, Yeah, let's dive into Uh, that one
0: yeah <laughs> It's a whole other part. Um, but so they lived in LA for 20 years and decided in so sort of the last um, it would have been 2019 that they were moving back to England. So we started off 2020 in LA, um, packing up the family house and and moving moving them back over here. So mum and dad. Moved right
1: at the start of the year
0: right in February
1: just before the whole thing kicked off
0: (laughs) just before it kicked off so we flew back Anthony flew back before I did I flew back by myself with Adeline who was about to turn two so that was a fun 11 hours um but flying back you know people were starting to wear masks and starting to um I remember I, I got told off by the cabin crew for letting Adeline walk around without shoes on Um, because I sort of thought it can't be that bad. Um, but you know, they were thinking the virus drops the floor and if she's not wearing shoes and, um, so we, we came back and went straight, we sort of locked ourselves down, um, got back at the beginning of March and then mum and dad flew over literally three days before lockdown was announced. Um. And moved. Luckily, to the f- to they they rented a flat next door to us in London, right. um, so we were next door to each other. But because you know, do you remember at the beginning, you just didn't know if you could get it from sort of spontaneously,
1: yeah, <laughs> you know, letter um, through the letterbox, yeah, was or from, out, or
0: even from, yeah, you know, when we were back when we were debt all of the groceries, and, and um, yeah. you thought maybe you just get it if you weren't worried enough about it, or
1: yeah, um, bonkers.
0: So we didn't go and see them for the whole first of the lockdown, even though they were just next door, I I dropped off groceries and kept my distance. And, um, and then dad got, dad got, he started to get sick in April. Um, and, but it, it was all contained. He spent May in hospital. Um, we knew it was cancer, but it was, and we knew it was cancer. Um, the, the kind of cancer that, you know, most people don't make it to six months with. Um, but they said he had the type of cancer he had was Two people a year in the UK are diagnosed with it um, because you know he ha- had to be special in every in every case couldn't do anything quite regularly. So two people a year were diagnosed with his type of cancer. It was the, the type of tumor it was, um, which they said meant that, that he'd be absolutely fine because it was such a rare kind. It was the kind of cancer that you wanted. Um, so he spent he spent May in hospital, and then came out of hospital and was supposed to be getting better. Um. Was supposed to have sort of a rounder chemotherapy as belt and braces, they said, to make sure that um, you know, it didn't come back, but it, it would all be over by Christmas. He went for a routine scan ahead of it. And then we found out at the beginning of August that it had spread and that there was nothing else they could do. So he died 16 days after, sorry, 18 days after after we found out that he wasn't going to be okay. Um so it was it was really that roller coaster of in and amongst the pandemic, he was in hospital for a month, we couldn't go visit him. Um, you know, and then sort of Thinking you were working on getting him better and then suddenly not. But in that, um, in those two and a half weeks we had with him, um, Anthony and I got married and dad got to be there for that, which was, you know, so it was, it was a real lesson in how you can feel happy even in, even when your heart is breaking, you know, there there can be light even in the darkest times, which was pretty incredible. Um, yeah, so that, that was the first half of the pandemic. And then the second half has been, Suddenly, find So Anthony and I, our company NeverGrey, we worked with dad, um, we were his head office for the past five years. So we've, we've suddenly found ourselves in the legacy business, um, which is, you know, a new, it's a, it's a new proposition really is continuing his work, which I, I promised him that I would do.
1: So we'll get into that because yeah. like you say, you're going one way and now you're going another. Yeah. I guess there's well, there's a there's a lot to unpack in in that, and you've been <clears throat> very active um, yeah. since he left in terms of marking that legacy and the intentions that you <clears throat> that you have with it all, and we can explore all of that. I'm just curious to go back if we can, mm-hmm. and just explore a bit more um, your your backstory. Just some more of the threads, if you like, of your, uh, of your story, the context. And obviously, you know, you, you, your dad was Sir Ken Robinson, you know, and to understand, you know, what were, you know, you lived abroad uh, for quite a big chunk of time and just moved around quite a bit. Just to understand more what the kind of seeds and, and yeah. things that catalyzed uh, your journey. If we could start with that, that would be smashing if, if you were up for that, of course.
0: I'd be very happy to. Um, well, so I mentioned that mum and dad worked together. Um, so mum was a teacher and um, and dad was was teaching at the time as well. And he was running workshops for teachers. His big passion at the time, and always, but was the arts and education, um, particularly theatre and education. And mum was a, a drama teacher, which is how they met. So they, they shared this big passion together. And Mum came from a teaching family, which you find you get teaching families. It's one of those things like doctors or... Lawyers, you know, you, you. I think every, you sort of trace mum's line back, and there's a teacher every, every generation. Um, but, but I mention it because I grew up in a house where the the things dad talked about, you know, the the issues he felt with the cre- with the education system, the importance of the arts and education of creativity and education um, was was a constant. You know, it was the conversation over the breakfast table, the lunch table, the dinner table. Um, I mean, what was that
1: like for you? You know, as much as you can remember.
0: I, it it was just, it's just normal, isn't it? The, you know, dad had polio when he was four and, um, I didn't know until the week before he died that he was completely paralyzed in one of his legs. Um, I didn't know till I was 20 that one leg was about two inches longer than the other. And I mention it just because it never crossed my mind (laughs) to question it. Um, you know, what, what, just when you grow up with something, it's how it is. It's what you know, isn't it? Exactly. And, um, my bedroom, so when I grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon, my bedroom, wall, I shared the wall with the bathroom, you know, and I wake up in the morning to hearing mum and dad talking about it while he was having a shave, you know, and she was sitting there sort of against the radiator and they were talking about it. Um, so I think a part of it is osmosis.
1: <laughs> yeah. As you're talking about that, it's making me think about your your dad's TED talk when he starts talking about Shakespeare's dad.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's it. We were from, it, the, the village was Snitterfield, which is where Shakespeare's dad was from. Um, which is a whole as you said in the talk it's a whole new concept of Shakespeare having a dad
1: yeah it gives up a whole (laughs) another world of possibility and questions (gasps) Being a
0: person Um, so we moved we moved to LA when I was 12 um, which I I get asked a lot if that was a a difficult transition um, to which the only answer is that we went from a field in the Midlands to California (laughs) so not that difficult as far as I was concerned it was (laughs) Um, you know, we swapped out the sheep in the, the field next to the house for a swimming pool. So, um, sounds
1: like you were quite happy with the shift.
0: I was fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> my brother wasn't. It was, it was, my brother was 16. And I think that's a much harder age to, um, you know, you've got a 16 year old, haven't you? Newly 16 year old. Mm,
1: that's right. Um, and he's just about to go to Canada. I saw but that's yeah. his choice, not well, ours. Well,
0: exactly. Um, so, it wasn't James's choice to go. He, you know, he had a girlfriend and had friends and, I think I, I, I had none of these things, (laughs) um, at 12, I just started year seven. So was in transition anyway. Um, but I went to a school in LA that was very elite, um, that was a former military school and that was, you know, a, a beautiful campus and state of the art facilities. And, but whose, whose primary purpose was to get kids into Ivy leagues. Um and how was that? You know, just talking about transitions. The school I went to in England, I went to a few different schools in England, but you know they were all sort of you sit and sit on the floor in assembly, cross legged, and stand up and sing your hymns. Um, sort of English prep schools. Um, the first assembly I went into in LA, they were playing M and M over the speaker. It was in the basketball court, and the students ran it. You know, I was like, where are we? <laughs> How is this school? Um but once the novelty wore off, um it, it it wasn't me. You know, it it worked quite well for my brother. And actually one of the, the things Dad always talked about is he did very well in the traditional education system. You know, it worked for him, it does work for some people. Um, but it did not work for me. And um I ended up leaving I got I got sick, I got glandular fever and left school when I came back. Um, I'd been off for about a month and um, got kicked out of my first class at 7 or eight, 8.30 in the morning for not having read The Great Gatsby whilst I was sick. Um, I may never read The Great Gatsby out of principle. I, st- I still haven't read it. <laughs> Slightly allergic <laughs> at the mention of it. Yeah, I, I may never read it. Um, but I, rem- I remember the day because I called my mum sobbing from the bathroom as every independent 16 year old does. Um and she stormed in with that and they took me out of the school, like Knights in Shining Armour. And then we had this big discussion, you know, about um what to do. When well, you know, was I gonna go to another school? Would would I homeschool? Um what what you know, we looked, we went and met with tutors and, and looked at all the other options for schools and eventually what was just, this at this
1: time? They're... No, I was just I was just wondering if, you know, um I mean, was this I just well it's just interesting to know where your dad like at this time, where his head was at, yeah, yeah, basically, where his head was at, with all you know, his whole view on yeah. um, education, schooling, particularly, just be useful to know at that time was, was this, you know, deep in his his work, so to speak. Because obviously, for me, like you know, his TED talks are my main reference point. So, but clearly, there's <laughs> they they were the they they came from a lot of journeying. Mm-hmm.
0: So I left school in 2006 and the first Ted talk came out a month before I left school. Oh, Um, really? but the reason you get to do a Ted talk is because you've, you know, you've been doing something. Um, so he he would tell a story about how someone once said to him, you know, you've been at this a long time. How long has it been since the Ted talk came out? And dad was like, I had a whole career before, (laughs) before the Ted talk is why I got to do the Ted talk. Um, so no, it it had always been a passion of his. It had always been what he talked about. he wrote a brilliant book called out of our minds in 2001 which um he, he released two other versions of it the latest i think it was 2018 because it's a book about innovation and change and you know by the nature of writing a book of innovation and change you it it outdates itself quickly um but it is it is just a, a i've been reading it recently it's a brilliant book um so the, this was a, but i think the school that they sent me to i think they thought you know it had a theater company it had a dance company it had state-of-the-art arts facilities i think they you know, from, from the outside, it very much looked like it was yeah. going to be all the things right. that we, well, he to Yeah. yeah I guess that was my question. Yeah. Why, why send me to that school? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I get it. Um, so they, you know, the, I, I was never sent to the sort of local school in the hopes that it would all work out. And I remember the time spent going into which school we'd go to in LA. And as I say, it worked for my brother. It just didn't for me. And yeah. as soon as it became clear that it really was not working, they, they took me out. And so the decision to, to make was what to do next. And what we decided we'd do is that, you know, they said, if you, if you're in England, you could leave school at 16, you know, so that, that as far as we're concerned, that's an option. Mm.
1: Um,
0: I think if we were looking at, if we'd known to call it unschooling at the time, that's what we would have called it, but we, we didn't know about unschooling at the time. Yeah. Um, but we, but that's what we did. And it was, I did, you know, courses at UCLA extension and, um, I went to a community college. I worked for Miley Cyrus <laughs> for a brief little while. Brilliant. Um, So, I mean, listen, this is a story of privilege and support and opportunity and having parents who are okay with you having unpaid internships, um, which, which not everybody has. In fact, very few people have, which is why it's a story of privilege, but it, but I was very lucky enough to have it. Um, and then, and then through that experience just, you know, got so, and, and then through part of that was helping dad with, you know, the research for some of his books or, um, you know, editing together videos of his for archives and things like that. And, and the more we talked about it, the more passionate I got about it. Um, and then, you know, I had the pleasure of working with him. So I, I, I used to, there's a, an amazing, uh, amazing initiative called hundred, um,
2: yeah.
0: which is a Finnish initiative that was started in 2015. Um, because Finland was celebrating its centennial anniversary. I want to say in 2017, and I should know because for a long time my spiel was all about Finland's centenary and I now cannot remember. I think it was 2017, it may have been 2018. Um, the idea was to look at the future of education from Finland's perspective. Um, and so I, I had my first And task.
1: the Finnish, as far as well, in my sort of vague understanding of education, the, the, the Finnish were, have always been sort of um, a little bit on it yeah. in terms of education, system, innovation.
0: Well, they, they just seem to do it better.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they do <laughs> things that value. Less rules. Yeah.
0: They, they value, <laughs> you know, children don't start school till seven. They, they value their teachers, which is a whole concept. Um, you know, t- teachers have the, the equivalent of a master's degree before they start teaching. Um, and the system's built differently. And so the, the reason it came to a claim was because they aced the PISA tests, um, a number of years ago. But what I found interesting is if you speak to somebody from Finland, they generally are kind of a bit baffled themselves. You know, it's, I don't think until Pisa happened, they thought to really look at the way they were doing education. It was just the way that they did education. Um, so my first task with hundred was to interview a hundred education thought leaders on the future of education. Um, it's kind of a dream job got, you know, to travel the world and speak to people about, about this. And it was also a crash course and what was happening globally in education. Um, and then left that to, to start our company, never Grey with Anthony and work with dad. which was amazing. You know, we had, we had five years of, of being his head office. So,
1: and, and what sort of things were you starting to explore in those, in those early years? What was the intention? With dad? Yeah.
0: Well, so the idea was that with the, with the exception of mum, um, and, and sort of various PAs over the years, he'd never had a team. You know, it was it was all him. The business model was him, and, and you know, the, the model of everything was him getting on planes and going and talking to people. Um, and that, you know, that just wasn't going to be sustainable forever. So the idea was that we'd come on board to help him help his message spread far and wide without him physically having to do it himself. Um, we we <laughs> we originally started calling it Project Legacy when we first started working with him, and he said it sounded like Project In Memoriam um and, and asked that we changed it, <laughs> so so we did <laughs> um, but so we you know it was it was that really we we talked about um we did podcasts, we you know helped with um partnerships and courses and and various things that you know take a while to get off the ground and are are still very much in the pipeline
1: hmm yeah. i mean so i mean he was exploring you know many things. Um, but I guess, you know, the starting point for for many people with his work would be human creativity and where it rubs up against mm-hmm. um, education systems. But he was very, very clear. I remember from that, you know, in the TED talk, he was very sort of to this idea that, you know, how can education systems as they exist today how can they prepare us for a future that we have no idea what it's going to look like like literally we have no idea what's coming even a couple of years down the line and now it's probably like two weeks (laughs) yeah no one saw this year coming (laughs) yeah so i I guess with that like i've you know how you know his view on creativity in this context you know he he's very clear his view is like you know creativity um should be is mm-hmm. as, as important as literacy and should therefore be treated in with you know with exactly the same sense of um of importance um prioritization um uh in our in our education so just i guess i'm just curious like how did that how did that show up for you um, in your life, these these beliefs.
0: Well, so Dad's contention was that there are various misunderstandings around creativity. Um, you know, one is that it's for creative people that you're either creative or you're not. Um,
1: which, which is still the, case, still the case, really. Yeah, still yeah. the case.
0: Um, yeah, the school that we went to look at this week, actually, the nursery teacher said we were talking about nativity costumes, and she said, "Oh, I'm not creative. I don't sew."
1: Yeah,
0: right. Well, but that doesn't. Yeah. So, so you, you haven't learned to sew yet, is all you're saying. Yeah. Um, that says nothing about your creative capacity. So that was that. The other. So it's either crazy people or not. The other was that uh, creativity is about certain subjects and certain activities. Um, whereas dad's strong contention is that creativity is. You, you can be creative in every single subject. In fact, you know, you, you have to be. Um, he defined creativity as the process of having um, original ideas that have value. And the, there were three parts to that. One was the fact that it's a process, um, and he talked about the the process a process implying that there are various different um, aspects that are in dialogue with each other. And so for him, creativity was a dialogue between idea creation and idea evaluation. Um, you know, and you and you flip back and forth between the two constantly. You you create an idea and then you try it and. Evaluate it, and that leads to an evolution of the idea, or a totally new idea, or throwing that idea in the bin and starting up with a new one. Um, so, so those are the big kind of myths around it. That it's it's you're either creative or you're not, and it's about specific subjects. And his his big point about it it was trying to shake these myths off and and help people understand that you know, as far as he was concerned, creativity and intelligence are blood relatives. You can't be creative without acting intelligently, and creativity is the highest form of intelligence. Um, and there's, there's a lot in that in terms of, you know, the neuroscience behind it and the way our brains work and sort of the inherent creativity that is constantly there. His, he talked, and I, I love this, which I will get to it later, but why we landed on imagine if was what separates us out from the rest of life on earth, because we are very similar, you know, many respects to, to all life on earth, you know, we. Hmm we rely on the earth to live, you know, we, we flourish only in certain c- circumstances and completely disintegrate in others. Um, but what's, you know, our lives are finite and we start small and grow bigger, but what, what separates us is our capacity for imagination, the capacity to bring things to mind that aren't present to our senses. Um, creativity defined as sort of applied imagination. You know, you can be imaginative all day and do nothing about it then make no difference. but. Creativity was taking imagination one step forward um and taking what's in your head into into reality um
1: yeah I, mean, I got a real sense from him that you know creativity it's a it's it's an active thing you know it's it, it's embodied yeah mm-hmm yeah that other, other great bit in, in in the TED talk about you know from sort of teens which is sort of educating sort of up and up from the from the neck up into the head, yeah, and slightly to one side, yeah yeah, and I, I mean I, I felt like that when I, when I was at school, you know you could literally feel it, it was like mm-hmm. this sort of in, intensity in the head. You, you know, to grasp what I felt was yeah. just sort of really a- abstract information, you know, and ideas that we've been told to try and grasp and understand. Yet, you know, some of us are just tuned in differently, um, like you say, or maybe approach things slightly differently uh, or spend time. But, you know, ultimately, it, it, it felt to me from uh, from my memory of the school system is, yeah, like not, not within the body. The body was almost, you know, forgotten. Yeah. Uh, you know, irrelevant yeah and you know creativity is this kind of dance often and of expression through many many mm-hmm. forms so um we have this idea of educating into the head it's quite visual when you start to think of it isn't it <laughs> it's like yeah i remember uh you know he yeah. told those those great stories about uh movement you know the need to move and for kids and you know again i'm i guess when we're thinking about his work, I'm just thinking about now, and you know, again, he used to have this 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 idea of this need for the you know the personalization of education, and, and again, he had that he had that phrase, you know, every one of us has special needs, uh, so to speak. Um, yeah. And what and what still blows my mind is that we we live in this culture now where you know if you look around, we're constantly, if you like, being told and enticed and offered these ways of becoming individuals right you know everything now is like individualize this you know um sort out your personalized mm-hmm. diet and uh, your exercise regime you know what yeah. you look like on instagram you know all these kinds yeah. of things um everything's about personalized 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 and yet education is still nowhere near to be seen yeah. really in terms of personalization why is that
0: well, there are there are some great examples of people of people doing it. Um, you know, there's things like big picture learning, which um, they break schools down into groups of, I think it's thirteen. Um, I'm Not sure there's any symbolism for the number thirteen there, and I may, I may have made it up that it's thirteen, but I'm pretty sure it's thirteen. <laughs> um, and they call them an you know an advisory group, and they have a teacher that's attached to each group, mm-hmm. um, but they stay in that group for the whole duration of the time that they're at the school. Right. Um, and the idea of that is that it's sort of an extra thing, but the, the teacher gets to know every child, you know, because 13 is a, num- a manageable number, mm-hmm. assuming I'm writing it as 13, <laughs> um, but it's a small number. That, so they can get to know each each of their children in their group um, and then tailored sort of learning towards the interests as they develop and then they have opportunities for work placement at a certain point and kind of help them. But what I find, so um, big picture learning is fantastic and 100 actually has numerous examples of you know personalized learning and examples of it but um what they are and they're doing a wonderful job of of it um but it fixes the system as they are Mm -hmm. you know it's it's sort of trying to because in in many ways the system feels immovable right um dad's point is that it's a human-made system all of our systems are you know and, and the very fact that we created them means that there's the opportunity to recreate them yeah um because they're human systems, they're complicated. Though you know, no one wants to take a risk with their kid, and there's sort of an I think an element of best of the devil you know, or I went through it and I'm fine aspect with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the bigger thing is that the systems was created for a time that was so different from the one that we know now. You know, I think the majority of our systems are, um, and actually, I'm, I'm finishing Dad's last book at the moment. It'll be a manifesto, and the kind of core principle of it is that the systems that we've created are stripping us of our, of our human resources. And systematically stripping the planet of its natural resources. Um, and, and, you know, we urgently need to address both of these issues.
1: Yeah, it's this industrial um, mindset, isn't it?
0: It is. Yeah, it is. And,
1: and um, about- <laughs> yeah, well, no, I was just I was just saying, it's just this call for something more organic.
0: <laughs> yeah. So dad, Dad's point, you know, we talk a lot about the traditional system of education being like a factory. Um, and you can see why that, dad, dad, dad used the analogy, you can see why it makes sense that... You know, you're in a production line, and every teacher is responsible for their sort of contribution to the final product. And there are standardized tests along the way, and um, at the end, you kind of package up the project product and ship it off. The way you know we group kids by age, and they go through the same system, Mm -hmm. regardless of who they are. You know, with these systematic checks. Um, But data got kind of in recent years, it moved away from this idea of it being a factory, because the, the crucial difference between a factory model and education is that children aren't inanimate objects (laughs) (laughs) you know factories create large quantities of of inanimate objects his his feeling was that the correct analogy was an industrial farm you know it's the mass production of living things Hmm. and his belief was that we're we're stripping our cultures and our people of our diversity of talents and of our you know the the very essence of what makes us human and of of our um our, of our individuality mm. at the same rate that we're stripping, that industrial farming is, you know, ravaging the planet and destroying ecosystems and, and you know, and, and leading to, you know, the high rates of antibi- um, antibiotic resistance and, um, you know, kind of w- was created to suit a need at a time and has done that very well, but in, at what cost? Um, and so there, there are four principles to organic or sustainable farming and he felt that there were four there could be four principles to organic education as well um that kind of and um, don't ask me what they are because off the top of my head i can't remember i could Come hear on. that that question yeah as i was saying it was like stop <laughs> speaking kate you can't back this up because it's not in front of you um i can't but there, but there were four that might, it's in creative schools if anyone wants to read yeah. it <laughs> um so it's the creative schools but um What what the fundamental difference is that industrial farming it it focuses on these vast monocultures and it strips the environment of so-called threats and predators the insects that feed on them Mm, mm. um, in in the interest of yield of creating these sort of massive this massive output of one type of crop, Um, and in doing so destroys the insects that feed on them and then the birds that feed on the insects and, and everything. Whereas sustainable farming focuses on ecosystems and creates different plant, you know, plants, different types of crop close together so that they can have this thriving ecosystem that, that helps them all grow. But his, and I I love this, the way he said it, he'd say that great farmers and great gardeners know that you don't grow a plant, you know, you don't stick it in the soil and then super glue on the leaves and the, you know, the petals Mm. and then sprinkle it with pollen. The great farmer or gardener creates the conditions, focuses on the soil um and creates the conditions for growth to happen and he'd say that great teachers would do the same thing you don't grow a child Hmm. you've got kids you know you know after the first nine months you um once they're born you don't you're not actively involved in growing them your your job is to create the conditions for them to grow into the best versions of themselves that they can be um and he felt that great teachers great schools did that they created the conditions for children to flourish
1: um yeah it's it's, that that was yeah yeah it's so fascinating again you you can you can apply this to so many things that are kind of broken now this whole idea again of sort of you know feeling seeing things in a more system-wide way seeing that like these are all about relationships and and inputs you know you know something that you do over here is going to have an impact over there yeah. and starting to be able to see more in holes, you know, rather than seeing things as, as, as sort of separate. I think gardening actually is a, a great analogy of our times, actually. Yeah. Um, I think we need, you know, more of that principle of, <clears throat> of, of gardening in everything now, mm-hmm. because it's trying to understand why certain things are happening you know, that we're now aware or destructive or problematic, you know, you do that, you know, in a gardening way through observation, through, through listening, through looking, through trying to understand different things that are going on. And like you say, sort yeah. of adapting the conditions versus, yeah. you know, destroying or coming in with a, a you know, a, a massive intervention. Um, yeah it's 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 so interesting. He he was always very clear at least as 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 I understand it again. Yeah, um <clears throat> you know he saw that it was certainly not a teacher school problem. Um here it was uh, a a system that was really restricting um so heavily and obviously it got worse over time yep. um teachers and individual schools ability to actually respond in the ways yep. they wanted to he was very clear right that this model yep. had been well, adopted he, he, globally right
0: that, um and I, lo- I love this he said you know rock and roll was not a government-led initiative the real change doesn't happen behind closed doors in government offices real change happens from the ground up um, and they you know, if you're if you if you're involved in education, you're the system. You know, if you're a mm. teacher to the kids in your classroom, you are the system. They don't care about what's happening in Finland or, you know, what what GCSE results the years you know, ten years ahead of them are doing. Um, they care about what happens with you in your class. So if you if you change your approach, you are changing for the kids in your class. You are changing the system.
1: Because
0: mm. um, you're right. It was never, and he was very keen, you know, never to tell teachers what to do, mm. because. I mean, how, how can you? First of all, you know they're they're the ones on the ground, and every class is different, every group of students is different, every circumstance is different. Um, which is the point, you know. You say that traditional education, education as we know it, is designed around the concept of conformity and standardisation, whereas life, yeah, is full of diversity. Yeah. it's you know, breathtakingly diverse. Hundred percent. Um, and and there's just you know he he moved away as well from sort of doing anything even relate vaguely government related for that reason because you you know you 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 spend all this time talking to governments and then the person you sort of maybe making headway with gets assigned to a different office and you're starting from the ground with with somebody else
1: yeah um, sounds sounds like working with business yeah. as well <laughs> yeah exactly
0: <laughs> yeah it, it it's about the people it's about the people who are actually doing it um and the you know no one gets into teaching because they're looking to get rich or famous of it. You know, you, you do it because mm. it's a vocation, because it's a calling. Um, so you, you don't get teachers waking up thinking, how can I screw up kids <laughs> today? <laughs> right. You know, what, what can I do to make sure that everybody leaves the school feeling like they've been stripped of who they are as a person? It's yeah. just not how it works. It is, it is very much the, um, the system that we've come to take for granted.
1: Yeah. He, he, again, he used to speak about this sort of, um, stigmatization if you like of of being of being wrong of making mistakes um in his view you know he used to say mm-hmm. you know if you're not prepared to be wrong you'll never come up with anything original but yet in our schools and you know our institutions yeah. business you know again we, we stigmatize that we don't create a culture of it's okay to you know you know actually you know lear- learning happens through through failing and So his view was because of that, we're we're educating people out of their creativity, you know, because we're basically making it more and more terrifying uh, for people to make the mistakes, right? That are completely, you know, necessary and unavoidable, Um, you know, if you're going to flex your creativity, right? And, you know, you have to be able to just, just sort of, you know, do things and learn from them. Um, it's it's funny. Yes, I was. I was actually my yeah. boy is sitting his GCSEs at the moment, and uh, this week, well, some some form of them, and he was just telling a story about you know someone um, that he was doing a bit of revision with, uh, uh, you know, a fellow pupil, and got a sense that they were, you know, just like not not speaking up, you know, very very reluctant to speak up in class mm-hmm. because of you know all these things we're speaking to and this this whole idea that you know. Many kids are becoming silent in these um in in these classrooms in these sort of environments and 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 where does that lead you because you know they don't want to be seen to be stupid or or make mistakes, so you know this whole um problem this whole culture- sort of exacerbates itself you know and i just I just wonder if you had any thoughts on that you know what what is it that might might shift that and you know is it is it already happening i guess you know i guess it will be in some places but you know, it's a big thing isn't it you know you see it and you see it carry on in the world around us you know this yeah. sort of ridiculing of people if they don't know you know it's like in inverted commas like what is, what is it to know a fact anyway but yeah i'm just wondering if you had any any thoughts on that sort of you know that culture of stigmatization i guess and you know it's it's coming through that failure is necessary but you know but you know, there there is no other real way.
0: Well, no, exactly. The um, it, it 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 really is an idea that we enforce, isn't it, through the testing, in particular, through. You know, the, uh, there was a general, and this is why Dad was so great in names, and I'm useless with them. <laughs> but um, a, a U.S. general, I think, who, who referred to the concept of how, rather than um, measuring what was important, we made what was measurable important right so rather than you know checking to make sure the kids can think outside of the box and come up with original concepts and and we we prioritize what's easy to test you know Mm. which for the most part is multiple choice tests (laughs) where there's one right answer and and for the most part three wrong ones and identify which one is correct
1: yes it's out Um, it's this output thing again isn't it um You know, it, yeah. It goes, goes back to what you were talking about with the factory farming. You know, you can yeah. say, well, you know, we've got X thousands of kids through on this grade, yeah. but actually what it doesn't measure is, you know, how many of them are struggling with their exactly. mental health or their yes. well being or, or what's going on at home. Yeah. Or. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got a good friend who's a superintendent in New York and he failed the US version of the 11 plus um, because his dog died the night before. Hmm you know, and he had to go in the next day and take the test and he just couldn't do it. And, and that meant that he couldn't, you know, it, it changed his whole trajectory of his life because mm. no one cared what had happened to any of the kids. You know, they don't, what, what happens the night before a test? Um, I think there's a, there's a big, and I hope, I hope the pandemic will do something about this, but I think sort of the move towards, you know, the, the rate at which technology is changing and, and the rise of, of AI, there's a big push to figure out what it is exactly that makes us human. Um, you know, what does separate us out now that we're creating machines that can do a lot of the things that w- that we're capable of doing. And I think what, you know, f- people working from home, for example, with the pandemic and businesses now thinking, well, actually, do we need people to keep coming in and people saying, well, hang on, I've managed to work perfectly fine and spend time with my kids. And I'm not saying it's been yeah. easy, <laughs> no,
1: sure,
0: um, but, but people are sort of saying, well, how much time do I need to spend commuting or sitting in one space? And, and when I'm actually capable of working differently, um, mm. All that to say, I think we've got to such a point where we've, we've done everything we can through our systems to ignore the fact that we're humans, hmm. you know, you're supposed to show up for work pretending that you're not feeling unwell or that you've not had a big argument with your you know husband the night before or um, your mum's sick, you know, you're supposed to show up to school and face it regardless of what's going on. Um, and actually we are, all of us, it doesn't matter what position you're in, we are, we are all of us human. Um, and that does come with, with make mistakes. And I think as soon as we start to, and I I spoke to a group of people not long after dad had died, it was the, um, international democratic education convention. Hmm. And, um, I wasn't ready for it. I'll be honest. I'd said yes to it. Um, in the two weeks after dad had died when I was superhuman and and nothing could touch me, Hmm. um, because the shock. And then by the time the thing rolled around, I think a month later, I, I was not superhuman and I got onto this, Thankful it was over Zoom, but it was about 150 people from around the world. Um, And I cried (laughs) for about 15 minutes at them. And then opened it up for discussion so that I, you know, they weren't all just sitting there watching me try and form a sentence through my tears. Um, And it turned out to be this amazing thing of people talking about their own experience of grief or how different cultures approach grief and loss. But the reason I mentioned it in this context, um, one person from Israel mentioned just, what was so incredible about Dab was the fact that he was so human, and it struck me such an odd thing to a beautiful thing to say, but such an odd thing that we would notice that about somebody. Once you know, he, part of why his talks caught on so much was that he, his thing was just get on stage and talk to people. You know, and we've moved away from that now. You know, if you're going to get on stage and do a talk, you have to have rehearse it and right. it has to be perfectly polished, and you can't make any mistakes. You know, we we do so much to try and forget the fact that we're human and all of us the same. Um, And I think as soon as we start getting our heads around the fact, and we'll have to um, sooner rather than later, the fact that we are human, then we'll start realizing that making mistakes is just fundamental to it. And it's not about the mistakes. It's how you move on from it
1: yeah it's a beautiful story, and you, you know what you're what you're saying is just making me think you know when when we do show up in our yeah. sort of full humanity, extraordinary things tend to happen yeah um to so like the zoom the zoom conference oh, was, it was probably, brilliant. yeah it was probably rich and deep and interesting because you showed up in your full you know emotional yeah. self
0: oh i oh i did
1: yeah (laughs) that was mortifyingly but but it's extraordinary isn't it what what happens when we allow ourselves you know when we're um when
0: we're vulnerable right
1: to show up exactly
0: you know it also we do just as a slight segue we do grief so terribly um in a secular environment in the west you know we i'm not religious and um it, it struck me when dad died that you you know, my mum's my family is Catholic and you know what happens when someone dies and they're Catholic, you know, you, you sit with them for the first 24 hours to make sure that the soul doesn't escape. You cover the mirrors, you know, you have a wake, you have a funeral and then you, a month later you all get together for the month's mind. And there's this big community that comes together when someone dies. If you're Jewish, you know, you sit shiver and, mm-hmm. and there there are foods that you eat and there's a whole process to it. Um, and what I found from this conversation I had with people there's a woman, um, from Nigeria, talking about how in her culture, when, her, when she found out her dad had died, she started howling and everyone ran out and they knew because the way she was howling that someone had died and they gathered around her. Um, someone in India was saying about how they scatter sesame seeds and water and watch them float away to symbolise mm. the process of letting go. Mm. Um, and we just don't have any of that over here.
1: Right.
0: Right. <laughs> you know, it, it was so, there's two weeks between someone dying and the funeral and nothing happens in that time. Um, and it's, that's another way that we forget or actively sort of ignore the fact that we're human you know we it's it it, everybody goes Mm. through it at some point we will all die we will all all know somebody who who will die but we don't talk about it at all um until you're facing it and then you have no idea what to do with it
1: we live on a life-giving rock called earth hurtling through space how bonkers is that You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. That feels, again, as you're speaking, it's sort of taking me more to this sort of Mm. industrial mindset, again, of control and not showing... Making
0: people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: Not showing your vulnerability. Exactly. Again, it's almost a... Uh, rejection of the the messiness messiness of 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 being human and all that that can hold and and again you know when i when i think of the school thing you know i've I've seen it with my own my own kids going into the into the school system and you know again no no criticism to the school they're in they're doing an amazing job but you you know you can see as they as they get older you can see the walls coming up you know in yep. terms of what they feel they can share yeah. within a school environment even even close to the gates you can see things con- conversations shift they they'll become yeah. quite sort of edgy you know it's just it's just so interesting how you know, i think you're yeah. right i think it's our our humanness actually that's that's almost being sort of con- constrained here
0: it is and, and you know i mentioned i'm finishing dad's book in reading the draft that he left me to finish What really has taken my breath away with it is that, as much as his work is a criticism of the systems, you know, the education system and other systems, more than that, it's a real love letter to human potential. You know, Mm. it's a real testament to his belief in what we as a species are capable of doing if we if we fix our systems and we embrace fully what it is to be human. Mm. Um, Because if you you know if you look at what we've done as a species so far, it's breathtaking. You know, our systems of language, of culture, our civilizations, our democracies, our works of art. Um, you know that no other species does this <laughs> we we do it mm. um and that's what really strikes me about his work it, it, as much of it being criticism it really is a celebration it's a come on we can we are better than this
1: yeah yeah again i mean you know just just from my observations he was always projecting the possibility of what could be you know um, exactly yeah you anyway, can, can you can you share a little bit about um i mean obviously sounds like things moved very fast last year for you guys but did you get a sense of how the pandemic affected him? And and I, I asked really because I think particularly when we you know when we uh look at education and schools and this kind of shutting of schools everywhere and children coming home and and obviously again you know for some that was a complete nightmare and for all sorts of reasons and and for others it was probably wonderful and but in terms of disruption to an education system we've never (laughs) experienced anything uh like that yeah did he ever speak to that, and and did you get a sense of what he hoped might emerge yeah. from these times?
0: Well, so there, yes, there there are two two aspects of it. One, we we did a podcast with him called "Learning from Home" um, during the first lockdown, and we cut it short because he got sick. But he spoke to various families around the world about their experience of a crisis schooling. One woman referred to it as because it's not it wasn't home education. You know, it sort of does homeschooling a huge disservice to refer to this as homeschooling. It was it was schooling in a crisis from home, Um, and what really struck him about it was the examples where people were actually thriving was when they weren't trying to directly replicate what the school systems were doing. You know, families where they were embracing um, cross curricular learning and and learning different things through different ways, but particularly ones where they were embracing cross age learning and having the older siblings help the younger siblings. Um, you know, and, and it was, as you said, it was different for everybody. We spoke to a woman in Utah who's who has four kids you know, one of them's 17 and the other one is six. The youngest one's six and everything in between. So she's there trying to help one of them with their college entrance and all of that. And the other one's too little to be able to read properly on an iPad. Um, and she's she was doing working part time and also studying herself. Um, and that's where sort of embracing just just doing things differently, you know, not trying to sort of set up a chalkboard at home and try and recreate the classroom as they thought it was, but actually sort of trying to make it work for them um, was where it really made a difference. But his, the second, the second thing to say about it, he did a thing in, I always get it wrong, I want to say March of 2020 called The Call to Unite,
1: uh-huh.
0: um, which was organised by Tim Shriver. It, was, it pulled together various people um, talking about uniting through the pandemic. And his whole point was we've pressed pause on our social systems it's time to hit reset on them as well you know let's not race back to the way things used to be let's take this opportunity this has never happened before let's take this opportunity to really reevaluate which parts of life it is that we are racing back to um and there's there's a wonderful guy called ted dintersmith who talks about rather than this being a lost year for education what if it was a found year you know what if we took this opportunity to to rebuild and restructure and i think we're, we're at a tipping point with it, where it could go. It could go one of two ways. Two ways. It could either go with people saying, "Well, you know, let's get back to basics as soon as possible and really focus on the testable things because we've got to make sure these kids get up to, you know, catch up with where they were." And we lose the opportunity, um, or there's a chance to really do things differently. And you know, we've got what we've never had before, which is parents having looked under the hood. I don't know if you saw Michael Rosen did an article a few months ago about fronted adverbials. You know about none, none of no, no adult has really heard of a fronted adverbial, and he's a writer. <laughs> you know, so why are we putting so much pressure on our kids to know how to use it correctly in a sentence? Um, I have no clue what a fronted adverbial is.
1: Yeah, honestly, on on that note, I look at some of the stuff my sons doing GCSE. I have no, no idea okay. what No, and, it is. and he won't. No he idea. He won't in
0: a number of years either. No.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, it's true.
0: So, so that was his hope. You know, was that we have this opportunity and we, we have parents having looked under the hood in a way that they haven't had an opportunity to do before to question it um and, and we've proved that we can do things differently so you know his, his real wish was that we use this as an opportunity you know that thing of flowers growing where there's dirt you know take make them take this awful situation and, and turn it into a, find the positive in it um which is not not a little how awful it has been
1: it strikes me you know because <clears throat> you know i'm often looking at you know what next across so many ways of of how we live and, and how we sort of organise on this earth and it and it feels to me as we're into this phase of oh, I don't know what it's called what 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 we're going back to or what we're stepping into no. or what's what's emerging from this process but it feels to me and it and it goes again to this idea I guess of, of what of what you were speaking about you know it's it's down to people real people in places but it feels to me like there's also Mm -hmm. a need for resistance there's a need for people to go do you know do you know what uh i'm holding firm to this you know whether i'm a a teacher or i run a business or i work in the community you know whatever it might be because you know the force will will try and take us back or slot us back into the machine again uh do, do you know what i mean i i think there is you know, some sort of resistance required, needed, I think, I am, um, to want to be able to shift this.
0: I am all for mutiny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a brilliant book called Be More Pirate um, that the, we've sort of based a lot of what we do on this idea of, of pirates picking something that they had an issue with um, and, and taking it into their own hands. They get a lot of bad press pirates. But I, I agree with you. It's it's why these kind of band-aid solutions are papering over the cracks you know, if we, if we try this little thing, you know, you'll be able to get through exam season. Um, I just, I think we're so far past that, you know, it's sort of the equivalent of the plastic straws. Yeah. You know, if if we all switch to paper, we think we fix the environment and it's such a small aspect of actually what we need to do, um, with it. I think the time has come, you're right, for for the resistance.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting on that. Let's, Let's get into the imagination piece. You know your your dad's key or one of his key messages, as as you said earlier on, was you know what sets us apart as a species is our ability to imagine things that that don't exist. Yeah. You know, when you go to his 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 TED talk, and I was you know I was lucky enough to do an interview with him. I think it was about six years ago, and you know that was looking at you know the bigger issues of our time, climate change, and you know issues of poverty all these things and he seemed seemed to me always to be very aware of this kind of fine line between doing incredible things with this imagination um but actually that there's also a very fine line into doing quite destructive things not necessarily intentionally but it's almost like this this superpower imagination um almost um and so could we chat a bit to um to that because um it seems like he was very aware of the kind of issues that were building up that we're now obviously experiencing yeah. uh, everywhere.
0: Well, if you think of every every aspect of life, you know, we didn't inherit a planet with these big structural cities. And, um, you know, he talked about Las Vegas, you know, about how there was no need for Las Vegas, not that it wasn't a wonderful place. And he and mum renewed their vows there for their 25th wedding anniversary um, at the Elvis chapel. But you know, it just being this example of sort of almost pointless human, human creativity. But if you look at everything, like I said, from our works of art to our buildings, to our symphonies, to democracy, to our language, and then you also take all the terrible aspects of it, um, you know, all the wars or the cultural battles or the the horrors, you um, they're as much a product of creativity and and imagination as the good things. And you, you can't sugarcoat that and pretend that imagination is wonderful all the time. Hmm. And people do horrific things, their imagination. He, he put, um, it's in this book that we're writing. He, he wrote that, you know, we've, our powers of creativity have brought us to a critical pass that we, but his solu- his his strong feeling, his solution to it was not that we need less creativity, but more. He said, the more complex the issues of the world become, the more creative our solutions need to be to resolve them, um, and that it's about it's about educating us around our creative capacities and and using them f- for good. Um, but he'd also become increasingly concerned with the environmental crisis, um, you know, and and. The, the, he referred to it as the twin these twin crises: the crisis of the, earth, the earth's natural resources and the crisis of our human resources, and how we are draining. Our systems are draining us of both, um, and that there was very little point in in planning for a future if if we're if we're not going to have one um, on the planet. And then the role that education has in in that capacity, um, and that creativity is is pivotal to it. Because you're right, you know industrial systems of farming and industrial systems of education came out of someone's someone imagined it and right. and created it um but the beauty of it as he put is that we create you know we don't live in the world as other creatures do we create the worlds in which we live and that the human world is born as much out of our minds as it is from the natural world you know we create these systems we are there's a quote from i'm gonna forget who it's by um I'm, I'm, I've, I've forgotten who it was but who mm. said that we are suspended in we're suspended in webs of our own. We're suspended in webs of importance that we ourselves have spun. Something like that, that, you know, we've created these systems and and attested Mm -hmm. values to them. Hmm. Um, And therefore, you know, we, we create the worlds in which we live. Yeah. But there is always a possibility for recreation is the beauty of it. Um, And I think that that's the message that, you know, when when talking about his legacy and the work that we have to do, Hmm. I'm very keen that it's not, looking back you know he he got sick and died he, he wasn't at the end of his life um so like people said rest in peace it never seemed quite right because he had no intention of dying when he did hmm. you know and there was this whole new chapter of his work and and as as far as i see it our, our job now is to carry forward that chapter you know not just sort of put a full stop on him and and create a few awards in his name and you know and maybe a foundation although we are also doing that <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's about continuing his work and, and steering us through this incredibly difficult period of transition that we're in.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's talk about imagine, imagine if yeah. maybe just, um, yeah. Can you just give us a bit of a story yeah. about, about it?
0: I can. Um, so Im- imagine if we, we did a big event for dad's birthday on the 4th of March this year, which Yeah. 2021. I still think it's 2020. <laughs> um, it seems very odd that next year is 2022. Yeah. Yeah, um, And the, the idea behind it was several fold. One was to kind of come together publicly for the first time and say, you know, he, he passed away. Let's mark that. that. Mm. Um, but it, it was more so kind of rallying cry to everybody who was inspired by his work to say, you know, if he let a spark in you, it's time to fan that into a fire and continue his work. Um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm aware when I talk about his legacy that, well, a few things, one that if I did nothing, it would continue, you know, his legacy is not dependent on me for it to continue. He he created an incredible legacy himself. Mm. Um, so the second is if I'm, if I'm going to get involved in his legacy, I've got a, a really big job to not screw it up. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> um, you know, not Sully's, no pressure <laughs> at all. No, you know, not Sully his name when he's not here to defend himself or, or mm. kind of clarify. Um, but the third is that, that we're not doing it alone. You know, he, he, ins- he inspired a movement of people who were dedi- as dedicated as we are to continuing his work. So that was Imagine if was, And it came from this idea of we, we've created the world, we can recreate it. And quite frankly, we really need to, at this point, it's getting urgent. Um, so the idea for imagine if is that it's, it was this big event to mark his birthday this year, but it will be an annual event and it'll be an annual celebration of human potential, um, inspired by this idea of his work being a love letter to human potential and it'll be a year round campaign. So we have all these statements from people who came forward with imagine if statements, you know, imagine if we did things differently. Um, and so we're partnering with various organizations at the moment to, to move the needle on them. So a lot of them are actually to do with the environmental crisis. Um, a lot of them are about education, obviously, and it's about partnering with the right people to, to take it from imagination into reality, because that was his big point. You can sit around all day being imaginative and not doing anything, but, um, you know, the imagination and creativity are not the same thing. You have to do something, it's not enough just to imagine you have to do something
1: yeah it's it's so interesting because it strikes me you know some of the things i have been looking at in the last year or so is sort of more inquiry based ways of working you know where you're you're imagining and then you're acting so you're you're experimenting on that to to learn quickly you know to 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 test something and that can be as simple as doing things you know in in your life you know it could be within your home you know you want to you want to shift something you know how do you how do you do that but then it obviously goes out into a wider world you know like community. Community and beyond but the, the whole idea that you know exactly it's, it's 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 feedback loops they're loops they're cycles of inquiry you know it's not it's not enough yeah. just to dream or just imagine um no. you, know, <laughs> you know we have to we have to go and then do something with that knowledge or that idea in order to understand yeah. you know the the feedback of it its potential or, or again it could be negative as well and i well, think that's then, such a big shift though isn't it again that's it's not how we're taught there's a sort of passivity around yeah. education in, in, in some ways.
0: But there is, a, we, we spoke to, I sort of went to look at a school for Adeline and the head teacher is very big into coding, which is great, but she was saying, you know, her job is to make sure that kids learn not so much what they're coding, but sort of the skills involved in learning to code because, you know, the world that they'll inherit, the coding will have changed so much by the time they get out into the world that what they learn now will be outdated and irrelevant. Hmm. And I sort of corrected her on it because she's totally right of course but that also these are the ones who will be redefining the coding. Right. <laughs> you know, they won't just be shaped by it, they'll be the ones shaping. Is the goal of it if we if we're raising our kids correctly, they're not just inheriting a world, they're leading a hmm. world. Um you know, we're we're raising the next generation not just to to live in the world as we've left it, but to leave their stamp on it and to you know, guide the next generation through it. Um there's a a really lovely phrase dad used in the book, which is, um, creativity is call and response. You know, so one idea to your point, you know, you, you have an idea and you test it, but you don't know what's going to come of it. The, right. the you know, he talked about how Gutenberg had no idea when he invented the, the printing press that it would lead to the Protestant reformation, you know, because he'd, he'd made something possible and that could then cre- you know, create something to spread like wildfire. Um, in the same way that the guy who invented the IQ test had no idea that it would kind of become synonymous with, with intelligence. However, many hundreds of years later, sounds um, like
1: the, the 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 guy who invented GDP. You know, you, he would have no idea that yeah. everyone would inherit that as a metric of yeah, success exactly. globally, <laughs> which which it was never intended no. to do. He was like, no, 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 don't use this to measure <laughs> success of countries.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's the same with education. You know, the PISA tests weren't really intended so that academic. You know, that standardized testing would become the be all and end all. It was sort of supposed to test the water. But you know, there's a positive side to that. You know, when when the iPhone came out, they couldn't have anticipated the types of apps that people would create, or the entire industry of app creation that they'd be creating. You know, the I guess the point is when when you come up with an idea. You know, to your point with this kind of process of the play between idea creation and then idea evaluation, you have no idea when you put something out into the world what what will become of it. Yeah, um, and just how important that is.
1: There's two things that sort of. Um come up for me when we're when we're thinking about the imagine if work you're doing you know i'm noticing probably really in the last year actually or may- maybe even less but there's a lot more well, it feels like there's a lot more conversation going on around imagination I you know, I've been doing a couple of yeah. um, projects myself exploring kind of um, collective imagination, imagination of communities. And what's been interesting, I, I did mm-hmm. this project down in down in Bath called Dream Space, which was, again, looking at how people look at the problems within a place, you know, um, but also giving people the op- opportunity to imagine how they might, you know, evolve those problems, address them, you know, serve them. And actually one of the funny things that kept coming through you know people you know people aren't used to be asked to use their imagination in a in a sort of positive way you know do, do you know what I mean it's sort of like we we, you know no. we, we'd love you to just to imagine yeah. and again maybe it's a little bit like you know it might be it might be a bit like your dad's idea of, of being creative I wonder if sometimes you know people think oh um I, I don't have an imagination do, do, do you know what I mean you know it's for those is for those that are kind of uh yeah you know more i don't know i don't know if i don't know if that makes sense sort of um you know people not like me kind of thing it's all sort of like
0: it's really whimsical and things isn't it it's, yeah it's this idea of it being almost stigmatized sort of yeah. away with the fairies or- yeah
1: exactly and 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 then and then this other this other piece that's coming up that i'm starting to hear and uh come across of late is this idea of, of moral imaginations and uh, it's kind of like you know what, what do we actually do I guess you know what we've just been speaking to it's like because the imagination is you know there is you know it's powerful there is yes. so much power in how we can reimagine and the things that we can create but in a, a time of so much um, complexity and, and urgency and the you know and the need to sort of stop so much of this kind of destruction in the world it's it's almost like well what what is the role of this this of our imagination yeah, of these powers this kind of moral imagination in, in 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 the future um it does feel like this work that you're really pushing through with now it feels like if there if there was ever a time it's uh, this
0: is it <laughs> that's that's one of the cruel things about the timing of dad dad's passing away is I, I really think there's never been a more important time for his message. Yeah. You know, that idea that the more complex the problems, of the world become, the more creative we need to be to resolve them. They're freaking complex at the minute.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know
0: They're the, the massively complex, the issues that we're facing. And, um, there's, there's a great, there's a great, um, neuroscientist called Dr. Amir Ahmedi, um, who he, he did, some, he did work with people who were born blind, um, to kind of reverse engineer ultrasounds and to help them see, um, through sound. So the way an ultrasound takes sound vibrations and turns them into images, he took images and turned them into sound vibrations. Um, and sort of through this 48 hour intensive training, you know, you could, could, a a person who was congenitally blind could come and sit down and pick the one green apple out of a bowl of red ones because of the system that he'd created. Um, what he found through his these brain scans of people who were blind and people who weren't is that um, he, he did brain scans to see, so people who could see, um, to look at an apple and scanned which part of the brain lit up when they looked at an apple. And then the next scan was imagine the apple and a different part of the brain lit up. Huh. Um, so he's identified through through this work where imagination happens in the brain and it has its own special bit. Um, But also what he's found is that everyone has different capacities for imagination. So he, for example, has a really hard time um, with visual imagination. He can't bring images to mind, but he's got sort of almost perfect recall of music. He's got a really strong music imagination, which is it's another one of those things dad always talked about how, you know, we take our senses for granted. We we assume we've got five senses, Um, but actually we have so many more than five senses. You know, we've got a sense of temperature. We've got, you know, it's not just about. And um, sight and touch and taste and smell. And what's the other one? Um, yeah. <laughs> Sound. <Yes>. Um, <laughs> but we've got a sense of temperature. We've got a sense of balance. Um, we've, we've got uh, countless amounts of senses that we just completely take for granted. And we take it for granted because we've been told so many times that we have five senses. We've never thought to question all the other ones that we have. Um, and I think imagination is an interesting one that we assume when we're talking about imagination, we're all talking about the same thing. Mm. Uh, but it's one of those ones like, how do we know we're all talking about the same red? <laughs> um, we, we all have different capacities for it, which I just think, I just think is fascinating.
1: Yeah. Um, and it feels like, and I'm sure there's probably like data and research and stuff, but it feels again like it's uh, it's a practice, right? Yeah. You know, it's a kind of muscle or, you know, like the more we're able the to... yeah. use it. Yeah, um, to it's, practice yeah, the beauty of the
0: placidity of the brain
1: yeah right explore our um, own imagination yeah,
0: abs- absolutely
1: which brings us back like uh if you know to where we started like the younger you know it's there imagination is rife in these yeah. uh in the young years yes. um and what we could be doing to keep cultivating that you know um and seeing that you know like your dad's thing you know it's it's as important as literacy and rather than you know mandating and forcing everyone into kind of you know strange algebra and whatever you know I'm not sure these things are yeah. useful but you know <laughs> surely now like you say what we're facing into as a as a species yeah. um, we're all different but it just feels like you know that's the one thing I think that just feels you know to me at least seeing you know my own just my own small experiences my own children just to be able to keep questioning to keep being curious to keep thinking you know how can i do yeah. this or or why can't that happen or or how do i try this you know just that you know what i mean that sense of openness of 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 possibility of of curiosity because you know everything else you know we have no idea you know yeah. we, there is no <laughs> certainty where any of this is going nope. so the ability to sort of just being able to overcome something through an idea or a behavior or just a way of shifting constantly being able to shift your views and adapt i guess is really what what maybe is what it's, we're looking at
0: it's maddening isn't it as well that education happens when it does <laughs> because you know when kids you know you know it from languages if they, there's a certain point when it's hard to it's harder to start learning a language whereas if you learn if you're exposed to languages at a young age you you can speak those languages um and these you know 12 to 13 years that that most kids go through at school happen at a point when their brains are so mushy (laughs) um Mm. you know and, and and it's so pivotal what we expose them to during that period and actually what tends to happen is we spend those 12 to 13 years shutting off various aspects of it and then the rest of our lives trying to open them back up again
1: yeah right um I've always thought that with things like like yoga and meditation. Yeah, you know, we get we get to our 30s and 40s everyone's sort of breaking yeah. down cuz they're losing the plot with how crazy life life it's is yeah and then we and then we try and discover all these things like yoga and mindfulness and, and whatever it might be to try right and deal we with can't it touch our toes. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. when our
0: hips are closing up we discover yoga. <laughs> yeah and, and like
1: anything to try and cope with the mayhem yeah. you know if we had that you know when we we're younger or we be able to sort of have these kind of tools and practices which are you know actually about having agency right because they're all they're all things that help you deal with the yep. complexity of life, you know, without having someone to tell you what what the answer is. You know, do you know, do you know what I mean? It's like all of these, all yep. of these things feel, just feel Thank so you. weird that we sort of strip them all out. Um, and then we get the sort of midlife crisis and we're all going, oh, shit. You know, it's like, why, why didn't no one show me this <laughs> stuff when I, was a, when I was a kid? Do you know what, do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I have two things to that. One is I've been doing the Nike Running Club app a lot recently, because because now we're in Windsor and there are fields to run in. Mm-hmm. Um, and Coach Bennett, <laughs> who's the coach of it, talks about how there's um, there's never just one starting line. You can have a starting line at any point in the run. Um, and he, he says, you know, he talks about well, he says it a lot in the runs, but he says, um, you know, I'm talking about running. I'm also not talking about running. Yeah, which is true because you know we, the way we we it's it is this kind of conveyable method of it, but we assume that we get to a certain point, our learning's done. You know, and we we carry on this trajectory and it's just so wrong. Yeah. Um and the other, the other thing to say is that I sit on the board of um Goldie Horns Foundation. Um and their their the sort of leading program they have is called Mind Up, which which is this, it's mindfulness for kids in schools. Um and they teach kids things like how to take a brain break, you know, how to just sort of take a step back and breathe and process something or um They talk about rather than punishing kids, you know, with sort of timeouts or taking things away, um, having them create a safe space where they've got pictures of people they love and, you know, things that are comforting to them and and having them go there to pull themselves together in in a safe space.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, Because the other thing we do a very good job of is is penalising kids for having emotions that we take for granted we have as adults. Right. You know, any of the negative behaviours or any of the processing, you know, we we don't allow our kids, I say this as the mother of a (laughs) three-year-old. It was processing a lot of emotions, um, you know. But it's easy because it's an inconvenience. You know, it's easy to say, you know, stop shouting or.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, well, it's it's all going back to yeah. command and control again, uh, doesn't it? It's like um, it's yeah. kind of like you know, you're 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 disrupting the system here, you know. Again, whereas actually, if you're if you're going back to looking at the vid at the individual, yeah. it's allowing them to what? Well, it's I guess it's about trusting them as well. I guess you know.
0: Well, yeah, that's a trust is a really big thing um it, it's a huge aspect of it you know we do such a good job of telling kids that they have no voice that life starts at 18 um and it just doesn't you know i, I don't know anybody who discovered the, the the um UN rights the child until after they were a child you know we don't we don't in school sit kids down and say you do actually have your own rights and your own you know there are things that you can do as a kid we it doesn't serve us as adults to do that because, you know, then they start doing it and breaking the systems we've worked hard to preserve. Um, but I do think, I think myself, that's the ultimate grassroots revolution, revolution is is young people, is getting kids as pissed off about this education system as, as we are as adults. Um, there, there was a great book by a guy called Nikhil Goyal called Schools on Trial. And I, I think he wrote it when he was about 18. And what I love about it, he's so angry <laughs> that he's just gone through the system um, you know, he's not, He's. it's not polished the way that the adult written versions are. He's not sort of taking into account the sensitivities around it. He's just angry about it. It's brilliant.
1: Yeah. I mean, this just makes me, you know, my own example of watching, watching my boy at the moment, you know, I mean, he's, he's getting through it and he's, he's doing what he can and he's, he's doing a great job, but you know, he's, he's angry yeah. and you know, he's, he's angry because he feels it's such a waste. Yep. It's such a waste of time and potential of people. That's what that's what upsets him more. It's like how how can we? You know, he sees he sees it as like enforcing this kind of system down on kids and, and teachers because he sees the frustration in teachers. You know, um, he's just like yeah. why he can't understand why. And and again, we we've, we've probably never been in a position ever to design such extraordinary learning environments right now. Right? Um, you know, we've got. You know, we've got oh, I don't know, there's um, yeah, exactly there's content everywhere, there's ideas, there's practices, there's support yeah. systems, communities, you know, you could reimagine this stuff, you know, you could you could prototype new schooling systems coming out of lockdown. You know, yep. that that feels like what we should be doing, right? Yeah. Like it's like what's the new hybrid gonna look like? There's so much potential. There is, I mean
0: even things like there's a there's a brilliant guy called um, Stephen Heppel, who's created a learnometer which is a little machine that you put in the desk and it reads things like the quality of light, the quality of air, you know, the, the, um, noise pollution in a space to tell you if it's conducive for learning, you know, because we don't take into consideration things like the very seats that we ask kids to sit in all day, every day are uncomfortable, you know, and, and sitting in that upright position. Yeah.
1: Sitting down. right? I mean, that's mad, isn't it? Lots (laughs) of kids need to move.
0: Exactly. You know, and and that we ask them to sit in these dark rooms, you know, or these rooms with fluorescent lights and and none of it, you know, he talks about how when you, when an elite athlete goes out to run a race or or do whatever their sport is, they know what they're going to have for breakfast to make sure that they get the most out of their bodies that day. But we don't tell kids what to eat the morning of an exam to make sure that they, you know, they don't have a sugar slump or a, you know, they get hungry halfway through it. We, we just haven't, And he's doing that, that research into learning environments, which is just amazing because he takes them into offices as well. Cause we do the same thing in our workspaces. We create these spaces that are just not conducive to, to the work that needs to be done more often than not. Back to the factories again. Back to the factories. factories. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Your dad's theory. Exactly. He was on this.
0: Yeah. But there are, sorry, just last thing. There are, there are wonderful examples of people doing wonderful things and actually United World College is one of them. Um, you know, they do, they do fantastic things. So it's exciting about going off to Canada. I know, Um,
1: but that's, that's what frustrates me. It it frustrates me that it's not accessible when, when it could be. That's that's the thing that frustrates me. It it seems to me, and of course, there'll be loads of other brilliant examples of, of places within the, you know, within the system that are, that are doing extraordinary things. But as, as far as I can tell, you know the most, you know the kind of ex- most exciting stuff is exactly. just not accessible. No, you're yeah. right. Unless you, you, you know, can afford it. Exactly. You've got money, or you know, you've somehow been offered a place, or whatever it might be. But it's not for the masses, um, no. and it could so easily be right. Yeah, that's the thing.
0: Well, and and it's in the interest of the system to fix it. You know, when you think, look at the the price of the dropout rates and and you know as dad would say the dropout rates don't even take into consideration the people you know like your son who are just disillusioned by the whole thing and find it to be a waste of time but are sticking it out um, it doesn't take into consideration the cost of unemployment or the prison systems or he used to say um, if you design something if you design a system to do something don't be surprised if it does it you know and, and the, the issues that the system is it create longer term and the and the financial implications even of that you know if, if, if the thought of sort of this moral imagination to your point or this idea of doing the right thing by the kids isn't what gets you up in the morning then the financial implications of the system not working are overwhelming um
1: yeah but you're right
0: you're right you know it it, it would be so it, in the perfect world it would be easy to fix it and as Dab would say you know his his work was never about theories it was about things that we know work and we know work because they are they are being done in these in these different settings and you're right they should be accessible
1: Yes, let's make them accessible.
0: <laughs> Fix the system. Yes. Yeah, so
1: imagine if. Um, yeah. So, how can people get involved? What's What's going on? I seem to remember, uh, rightly as well, when you did when you did the launch, you had like l- l- loads of content, right? Good. Um,
0: Eleven hours.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll link out to all of this, but um, just going forward, is there anything you can share more about ways for people to yeah. to get hooked into it? Well,
0: so we have um, imagine ifcom <laughs> so i haven't been on it for a bit because i'm writing this book i was like is it.org? it's That's definitely right. dot .com <laughs>
1: i'll put that in the show thank notes thank you
0: um which which is probably the best place at the moment and we we've established the Sir Ken robinson legacy fund as well to to continue his work and there'll, there'll be information about that on the website soon as well um but at the moment it's about you know we I, i've been using the email address skr at nevergray.org um for people just to get in touch and say how they feel the best way to continue his work is or to share the work that they're doing. Um I think the first steps that we'll be taking is about pulling this community of people together. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 I had after I did that um talk I mentioned where I just cried, <laughs> um, somebody sent a message afterwards saying they were so glad to hear they thought that because dad had died, the work had stopped. You know, the movement was over and it he, you know, he would say it was so much bigger than he was. He'd say he wasn't the first person to come up with these things. Um, you know, that he was standing on the shoulders of giants and it's, it's our turn now to stand on his shoulders. Um, So I think imagine hyphen if.org and, and that email address skr at nevergray.org and, and don't be shy about getting in touch.
1: Amazing. Thank you, Kate.
0: No, thank you. This has been so much fun.
1: Yeah. So I was going to get to this question I always finish with on the Spaceship Earth podcast. And it is funny. It's making me It's making me think about the one and only conversation I had with your dad, which was, what was it, Um, 2060, I don't know, 2015, six years ago, I think. We were exploring the launch of the Global Goals and he was doing the work um, designing the world's largest lesson and we talked a lot about climate change and we talked a lot about ecosystem destruction and poverty and all the connections and he was talking about how he was thinking about you know um helping kids see our planet as this this living system um and he was talking actually about being in space and coming in and seeing this earth this uh this speck of life uh in 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 the universe and uh it was just interesting because it's making me think of this metaphor that you know has gone on to inspire me so much this idea of the the earth as a spaceship and i just wonder now this idea of becoming crew uh on on spaceship earth what might that speak to you right now here in 2021
0: I'm mad. I think it's 2021. i um, will <laughs> never get over that. Um, do you know, I think you've hit the nail on the head with it. I think it is about agency. It's about not seeing Spaceship Earth as a free ride, but it's about taking responsibility. Um, you know, we have, we have one opportunity, we have one life to live and we have one planet to live it on. And it's about taking responsibility, both for our own lives and for the planet that we're, we're all sharing on it. Um, yeah gonna say I'll, I'll put a full stop on that <laughs>
1: love that beautiful thank, thank you so much kate
0: no thank you this is great
1: it's been amazing thank you so much for sharing uh your stories of your dad and you know he's just oh, an you. extraordinary human and yeah
0: it was pretty incredible it really was yeah and um, but but the work carries on
1: well that's that's
0: the best
1: way yeah well i wish you all the good vibes thank you and definitely this wave of imagination is uh is what we need it's such an interesting moment now for this work you're doing so um wishing you uh massive vibes and uh good energies for the 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 work that is coming to reimagine yes indeed (laughs) we'll be in touch wonderful So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with uh, Kate. Such a beautiful human and what a treat to learn uh, more about the life and mind of the late Sir Ken Robinson and the work Kate is doing to build on his legacy and help bring forth the creativity and imagination revolution, which is so urgently needed right now to help us reimagine our ways of being uh, and organizing on this beautiful planet, but also maybe where our own individual potential and well being truly lies as humans. If we could only allow and encourage, cultivate and normalize it to dream, to express ourselves, to create and dare to be more empathic, beautiful, kind, and curious for now, for the future. For ourselves and for all life. Just imagine what could be. If you like this podcast, please give us a review. It will take 60 seconds and it will help others find it or just share it with those who you think might like it. You can sign up to the monthly newsletter, Becoming Crew. Um, You can follow us on Instagram at thespaceship.earth. You can leave us a donation if you like, a price of a cupper if you like this episode. Uh, You can do all that via the website, which is thespaceship.earth. I'm going to play out with a track. Uh, This one's from 1997. It's by a French act called A Reminiscent Drive. Uh, It was an album, awesome album called Mercy Street. Uh, And this track is called Life is Beautiful. And this version is a cheeky little bootleg version, uh, an exclusive for the Spaceship Earth podcast. Take good care of yourselves out there. Until next time, peace and out.
2: A species facing enormous challenges. But the two things about them one is that they are relatively recent challenges. Certainly, climate change was not something that Shakespeare was going around fretting about or that anybody who preceded the Victorians had on their mind. Um, it never occurred to people that we might mess up the planet in such a way that we couldn't stay on it any longer. Uh, and the second is poverty. And some of the root causes, I think, are also the roots of the solution. The fact that we're creating is really important because human beings are the most creative species ever to live on the planet. And we haven't been here that long. The planet, you know, when people talk about saving the planet, it's a slightly arrogant attitude, I think, in that the planet's been around for four and a half billion years. It'll be around for another four and a half billion years, as far as we can tell. As far as we know, the dinosaurs were around for 13 million years and they didn't leave of their own accord. Um, we've been around for about 150,000 years. I, I mean, as modern human beings. I mean, we were cooking for a long time before that, but modern human beings like you and me, like quite attractive group of people down you know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, we've, we've been around, so far as we can tell, for about 150,000 years. So the image I was using in the lesson is that if you were to think of the entire lifespan of the planet as one year. Human beings showed up at about a minute to midnight, less than a minute to midnight on the 31st of December. So it's not long, really, and, and for most of that time, there's nobody around, really. Far fewer than a billion people, far fewer. It took till 1800 to get to a billion. We're now approaching seven and a half billion, we're heading for 12 billion by the end of the century, according to who you listen to on population projection. So most of that's happened in the last 300 years, which is a beat of a wing, cosmically. And it's happened because we've got even more and more creative. You know, we, from the Industrial Revolution on, our creative powers have simply grown exponentially, collectively. So we've transformed the circumstance of the planet. We are transforming the face of it. And the more of us there are, the more taxing these problems become, because we're not we're being very creative but not very far-sighted about these things. Our reliance on hydrocarbon fuels, our methods of farming, our obsession with pouring chemicals all over the planet, the way we're messing up the oceans. What we're endangering is not the planet, the planet will recover. It'll shake us off like a rash, you know, like we tried to humanity not so good. You know, but we're going back to bacteria, they were fantastic. What we're endangering are the conditions of our own survival. So that's a really big issue. Seems to me, Uh, are we are we now putting ourselves at risk as a species and all the other species with it? And a collateral piece of that is, or or a complementary part of that is that all of these efforts to um, exploit the earth and to better our own circumstances are being done competitively rather than collaboratively, and so we're creating these massive gulfs in the conditions in which. Groups of human beings live. Uh, there was a, uh, I've often quoted it, but there's a thing on, um, about, on the BBC about how many people can live on Earth. It was a documentary presented by David Attenborough. Uh, it was called How Many People Can Live on Earth. And the BBC is very good at titles, as you know. And uh, they concluded that if the, everybody on the Earth consumed food, fuel, and water at the same rate as the average person in Rwanda, the Earth could sustain a maximum population of about 15 billion people. So we're halfway there. But we don't all consume as they do in Rwanda. If everybody on the Earth consumed as much as the average person in North America, you know, food, fuel, and water, the Earth could sustain a maximum population of 1.5 billion. Well, we're at 7.5 now, so... You know, one projection is if the entire planet wants to live as we do in North America, which is where around us now, and actually you could also say the UK, it's it's not so different. By the middle of the century, we're going to need about four more planets to make this work, which we don't have. So these two factors of the exhaustion of the resources we need, uh, the way we're upsetting the ecosystems that we depend upon, uh, combined with the unequal distribution of resources and wealth and uh, circumstance among the 7.5 billion of us that there are seem to me to be absolutely critical. And it's not like we've got forever to figure it out.